Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded at ATX Television Fest. Were you there? It was the best, right? Were you not there? Why weren't you there? Season 6 badges are now on sale. That's for next year. You don't want to miss this. They've already got some amazing things cooking. Go to ATXFestival.com. Get your Season 6 badges there. Uh, Also, they're putting up uh, video versions of all of the podcasts that I'll be releasing and all of the panels and stuff, uh, some that I won't be releasing. Go to a atelevisionexperience.com, atelevisionexperience.com, and you can see the video version of this and uh, many other panels and events that happened at ATX this year. Hope to see you in 2017. Holy cow, Jean Grey and Ted Leo made this amazing song for me to include in this episode. Uh, follow them on Twitter, at Gene Greasy and at Ted Leo, and tell them how much you love it, because it is awesome. Without further ado, Norman Lear and Katie Seagal. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take a bow, Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Oh my, let's all sit down. 
<sighs> so how does it happen that I'm your godfather? Do you, do you guys know? This is, well, this is the lore, Norman. First of all, I'll just, I'll just give him a little history and why this is so amazing for us. Um, Norman uh, actually introduced my parents. My mother used to work with Norman on the Lewis and Martin show. On the Martin, yeah. And she was the script supervisor, yeah? Uh-huh. Script supervisor. And, um, you know, so we kind of all came up together and I introduced her mom to her dad which how did you know her, my dad I don't remember how you knew my dad um, we were friends they I were friends I don't remember how we were friends he, he was, was a director then he was a he was a director then and he had been a child actor in the Yiddish theater right that's exactly right <laughs> and he spoke he could do a Yiddish accent uh <laughs> oh my god he, it, I, I uh his the way he could tell a joke at a time to my, that's early on in my life when I realized laughter adds time to your life. Oh. And Boris Segal was just so fucking hilarious. He was. He was pretty funny. He yes. was funny. So this was sort of, you know, a full circle moment. I came here to do a panel with my husband and when I walked in they said, Oh, Norman needs someone to do his panel. Could you do that? And I was so thrilled. And, you know, the, the, the lore is of my life was that you're my godfather. Do you know that? I accept. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I That's love what my it. parents always told me. They said, you know, he's your godfather. I was like, oh, okay. So I'm just assuming you know a lot about me, but, I, you know, I don't know if that's true. And is this not one of the great talents? On <laughs> oh, top of it. Thanks, Norman. So they handed me a list of questions. Uh, last night I watched this amazing documentary, which um, was so heartwarming. And my husband and I watched it and shed tears. And, you know, I think what struck me the most and what I wanted to have you talk about a little more was how this journey continues. And you do talk about it. And you talk about, you know, it was remarkable to me that at the age of 80, you went into therapy. I'm assuming it was for the first time. Uh, it wasn't for the first time, but oh. it, was for the fir- it was for the first time in 30-some years. Wow. <laughs> and that, at that time in your life, you yeah. decided to dig deeper and to find out more and to keep answering questions, asking questions, which to me is, you know, mm-hmm. how we're still sitting here. Would, would that be your... Can you talk a little bit well, more the, about that? The great... Uh, the great discovery is uh, one of the great discoveries is that it never ends. The insights one is a bit that are available to one uh, at any age. I mean, I've learned things about me or about life or about. I've had insights in recent days, and I'll be 94 in July. Fantastic. Now. <laughs> But I mean, but I mean, major insights about who we are. My bumper sticker reads: the, "It's the title of the uh, the film, just another version of you," which occurred to me a long time ago. Uh, that we are just simply versions of each other. Right. It transcends race. It transcends identity. You know, all ident- we have a common identity as human beings. Right. And. Uh, 
Which is, I think, what so much of your work did for all of us. All of us related to a piece of that work. All of us felt that we were bonded. It was, it was sort of like, you know... You, I remember, you know, even when I did my little television show and people would say, oh, my family's just like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that all the work you did was uniting everybody to feel like we are all the same. Um, I was wondering also, I was, was there a particular stage in your career when you felt like, I'm successful now? Like, did you know? Did you, you know, know all that was going it's great, on? It's a great question. Uh... I was a kid of the Depression, and uh, I mean, it was serious stuff. My, all the men in my family were kind of belly up, and nobody was making a living. And when, when the ancients in my family, you know, the Tantas, the older the generation, my grandparents' generation, talked about uh, people, uh, I would hear the expression now and again, oh, he's a good provider, a good provider. That's my, that was my ambition, to be a good provider. I also had one uncle and Uncle Jack who used to, or maybe he did it more than once, I don't know. He flicked me a quarter. There was nobody else uh, in my family that was any kind of a role model, but an uncle who could have flipped a quarter to a nephew, I like that. <laughs> so I wanted to be a nephew, uh, an uncle who could flip a quarter to a nephew. And he was a press agent. So I determined I would be a press agent. Really? You started, you wanted to be a press agent? Yeah, because he was. Truly, there wasn't anybody else to, you know, think uh, I want to be like him. Right. There were no other I want to be likes. (laughs) Uh, So I, that's what I did. I was serving overseas between missions. Uh, I stood over an Italian printer in a little shop Letter by letter, I talked a little Italian. Letter by letter, we made this uh, page up uh, announcing that I was going to be, you know, the war was ending soon. I would be out of the service. I would be available, and I had the mind that... I remember one line. I wanted to be the guy next to the person there saying, who's that with? I want to be the with. Oh, you wanted to be the guy (laughs) next to the guy? No, I want to be next to the guy. Wow. Uh, So... I, you know, I should be a, a, a press agent. And now, to me, it speaks of humility. I mean, that's what that sort of speaks of, you know, kind of... Well, if you, if you know, understand yourself, you know you have good reason to be humble. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, I think, I think when you have enough humility, then you remain teachable. Then you remain a person yeah. that can continue to learn and grow and all that. So it sounds like that's... That's what that position was. Can I tell you something that uh, has been on my mind a great deal? Yeah. That only occurred a few months ago, my 93rd year. My, my, uh, my wife and I were in uh, uh, Italy, and we had a few extra days, and we know we're friendly with uh, uh, the ambassador to uh, Germany. A young couple, and you may know the Kimberly, oh, the, the Kimberly and Emma, yeah, yeah sure. the Emersons. So he called them, and they said, "Yeah, it's a perfect time to come. You can stay with us, and so forth." So we went. I have no idea why it didn't occur to me. I was flying to Berlin. Right. The only time my wife had been there with one of our daughters, uh, but I had only been there to bomb it. Wow. 
once. It was the longest mission in the European theater from uh, Foggia, Italy to Berlin. It was, I didn't know until this last Veterans Day uh, how uh, iconic a mission it was. Anyway, uh, and, and that was because they paid it some special honor in the, May Day, in the Veterans Day parade. But I'm flying to Berlin and uh, and I suddenly remember what it was like the last time and on every single mission I was the radio operator and, the, and had the top gun I was closest to the bomb bay doors so I pretty much looked over wow. and watched our bombs I was the guy who notified the, the uh, pilot they could close the doors because the last bomb had dropped oh my. so I saw our bombs drop and I saw them further down gathering with the hundreds of other bombs from all the other planes around us from the entire squadron. So I would look at hundreds of bombs dropping before the Bombay doors closed. And I would wonder, all those bombs, are they all going to hit a target or could we miss? And could we hit a farmhouse? Oh. And, and I recall so well thinking, screw them. Hit a farmhouse, go. I would imagine a family sitting around a table and say, "Screw them." Wow. And uh, and then hours later or days later, when it first occurred to me, I wondered if if anybody came to me with a piece of paper and said, "Mr. Lear, if you sign this, you will forever not care that that bomb hit a farmhouse." And all I could do was pray that I wouldn't be that guy, <laughs> that right. I wouldn't sign that paper. But the fact is, I had that feeling. At the time. I, I, I thank God, have never been tested. Uh, but I was capable as a human being of having that degree of vitriol or hatred or whatever that I didn't care if it hit her. But, you know, it, it hurts to think about it now. Right. But years later, after I had my first child, I remember thinking, hurt that child. I will drive you, mother. I will drive six hours and kill you in front of your family. Right. Yeah. So another form of vitriol. So, <laughs> Just the flip side. Yes. But the important thing is that we humans are capable of whatever any other human is capable. It's, the rest is all luck and decision and circumstance and whatnot, but just to know there's nobody that is so foreign as a human being from you that you don't recognize the common humanity. Well, and gives us compassion. You know, that's where we... Yeah. Is that all? Um, you know, it struck me also when I was watching the film that you had so much success in your life. I mean, crazy. I mean, it was a great, what, what was it, like 10 shows on the air at one time or six shows? I mean, it was some, like, insane Seven. number. And that was in the days of television when, like, to stay on the air, you had to have, like, a 30 share or a 35 share. It's just not the way it is now. And I was just wondering if, um, was there ever a point when you thought, Maybe I can't handle this all. And I, I, I did see in the film that at a certain point you did decide, 
And I didn't understand if it was like, okay, I'm working too much, I got to slow down, because it didn't feel like you really slowed down, you just sort of shifted your focus. (laughs) But um, was there a point, and I wondered if it was ever inspired by self-doubt. Did you ever have... I, Not self doubt. Yeah, I guess self doubt is the right. Uh, you so, have it every day, right? Self doubt is something I am. This is what I mean by it, does, it doesn't end the learning process. Uh, self doubt is something I'm conquering every day of my life today. Really? <laughs> yes. It's. Uh, but how does that it's manifest? It's hard to be a human being. It is hard to be a human being. How does that manifest, though? It. I have this like really naive image that we get to a certain place in our lives where we have so much self-acceptance because you know ultimately we realize we're not in control. I cannot control the outcome of things. I cannot control what you're going to do or you're mm. going that we sort of don't have as much of that self-doubt. But is does it come up in other ways? I'm uh, you know I'm involved in a new show. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You are. So you're we're, selling, we're, right? We're doing, if you all remember, uh, One Day at a Time. Right. We, we are doing a version of uh, a Cuban-American family, uh, Latina family. Uh, Rita Moreno is the grandmother. Love that. Justina Machado, the mother. Uh, it's a great company, great cast and everything else. So I'm the senior guy. I am not the showrunner's. There are other showrunners. I'm in a role I haven't been in before. Uh, And I have come to the table, and I'm looking at 20 or 21 young people, far younger than I, (laughs) at this table, uh, and wondering if there's any way they would know how scared I am. Oh, you're so sweet. No, 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 it's... Sorry, it's not that's a question, why. sweet. It's 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 the reality. I want. There's nothing that's. I, I'm I'm better now than I was six weeks ago. Oh, before you. Or, and ten years before that, and forty years before that, because the process is. But I. I don't. I have yet to get over that little piece of. Uh, Am I really contributing here? Right. You know, what what more are they expecting? Maybe that's what keeps us going, though. Because I, I, maybe that's maybe that's the necessary sort of it could push. Be. You know, not complacent by any means. Fear. It's that healthy fear, possibly. Yeah, and maybe there's a little vanity in it too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> quite a bit. I would think so. You yeah. know, I always think you know we don't do this without some kind of How good substantial do I need ego. To look every second. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Oh, I know what I wanted to know. There's so much television on right now, and I'm curious as to do you spend time watching new television, and if so, what what floats your boat? What do you like? I can't keep up with it. I right? just can't keep up. I, <laughs> it's too I, much. Twice, three times a week, uh, somebody I care about, respect, is saying, you mean you're not watching? <laughs> <laughs> It happened to me today. Louis C.K. has a, a show that I hadn't even heard about. Right. Well, it's kind of a web show, I think. Isn't it, it Horace and Pete? Yes. Yeah. And, and I'm crazy about him, and I never even heard about the show. So uh, the minute I get uh, started on Transparent, which I think is glorious, 
uh, nine people are saying, but you're not watching X, Y, Z, and, and it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. So, so many shows to I watch. don't try to keep up anymore. I can't. Do your kids come but to I you still and tell watch, you? I still watch uh, uh, South Park. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Very good. Yeah, no, they're still at it. How about Family Guy? Do you watch Family, Family Guy? Family Guy, yes, yeah, yeah. I love Seth. My husband's favorite show is Family yeah. Guy, yeah. What do your kids watch? Do your kids talk to you about television? Are My kids, kids are, you know, nobody's home. I'm, I, an, empty, I'm an empty nester every 33 years now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask you if there's anything else you want to accomplish work-wise, but it sounds like you are. I also heard earlier you have this show for uh, an older set um, oh, oh yeah, that you're yeah. trying to pitch, and I, I, I wanted to offer my services pretty soon, like not too long from now. I could maybe be in that show. You know, I, I, when I heard that you just did a pilot, yeah, as you were telling me just now about uh, they picked up the option, so forth. I was a little sad. Oh, but well, <laughs> because they, they extended the option. I might be free. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have, we have a lot to talk about. Okay. This show is called Guess Who Died. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, we'll talk about that. Let's see. Um, they gave me, I have all these questions that I don't know if I want to ask you, but... Um, ask me. I know, I'm going to have... If you had... Okay, let's see. Well, is there anybody in that you see that you haven't worked with that you would like to work with? Katie Seagal. Oh, see? He's officially my godfather, and he wants to work with me. <laughs> well, Those are, you know, the way my life... The way, you know, there there is such a thing as good fortune, and I think you can help it along. Uh, somebody once said, "At the moment of commitment, the entire universe conspires to assure your success." Oh, I totally believe. Was it Nietzsche? Isn't that it's great? Nietzsche. I, I think. think it was Wolf. Uh, no, I think it was uh, Goethe. Ah, it was Goethe. And I heard, always heard it was the moment of commitment. God intervenes. The same kind of concept, yes. Well, well um, you, could, you could say it that way. <laughs> but, Yours is you know, you, you, sometimes you, you, you think you're commit, committed and, and find out you weren't really. But when you are, uh, you bump into somebody, the phone rings that you didn't expect, you read something somewhere that helps, you wake up in the middle of the night with the answer, you know, the, the, and I love the word conspires in that context. So the true. universe conspires to assure your success. Yeah. I completely I agree to that, too. I think that comes with, I think that sense of commitment is one of the great benefits of getting on in life, of getting yes. older, as we say, is getting more mature, is that, you know, that fear of commitment drops away. I see her mother in her face so clearly. Is, that's so sweet. Her that's name really, was Sarah Macon. That's right. And she was, uh, she was just the most wonderful soul. And face and sense of humor, and she, she was, was glorious. They were a pretty good couple too. Those they two. They were a great couple. Wow. <laughs> they were a great couple. My parents have passed away, so. Um, I miss them. You know, it's funny. It's like when I watched you last night revisiting your father and the memories and your mother. I know you had a very close relationship with your mother. Yes. And um, I, I so... Are you serious about my mother? 
<laughs> well, I, I know you like to talk about your mother. That's what I was told, that you like to talk about your mother, but it wasn't a close relationship with your mother. Well. Yes or no? This is, uh, this, this is my mother. I called her to tell her on a Sunday morning that I had just learned from my good friend who runs the Academy that the Motion Picture Academy is going to start a Hall of Fame. And among the and these would be the first inductees. General Sarnoff, who started C, uh, NBC. Uh, William Paley, who started CBS. Edward R. Moore, the greatest of the correspondents. Patty Chayefsky, the greatest of the television writers to come out of television. Milton Berle, Lucille Ball, and me. And I called my mother in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I said, Mom, they're just starting a Hall of Fame. The first inductees are these names and me. And she said, listen, if that's what they want to do, who am I to say? (laughs) (laughs) Well, then they totally misled me. They said to me, talk to Norman about his mother. He loves to talk about his mother. (laughs) Thank you, whoever said that. Thank you very much. But I got to tell you, the best of the mother's stories is not my mother. It's Neil Simon's mother. Neil Simon's mother talk about this without um, my mother lived in Bridgeport Connecticut my father had passed she remarried there was a moment after she remarried when I was introducing her to a friend and I said mom I'd like to meet this is my mother Mrs I couldn't remember her last name (laughs) (laughs) anyway she lived in an apartment building in Bridgeport and Neil Simon the great playwright you're familiar with Neil Simon um lived in the building her also neil simon who was called doc simon when i knew and we were both kids had a brother danny who was a little older he was the writer and he and he brought danny uh neil along and neil became a, a writer and so when neil became very very famous and danny was a workaday writer one day danny comes to visit his mother at five o'clock in the afternoon the women used to gather in the, in the, in the lobby and chat, and, uh, and Mrs. Uh, Simon sees her son, Danny, coming toward them, and she said, Oh, girls, I want you to meet my brother's son. Uh, my, I want you to meet my son's brother. Right. <laughs> oh. that's, the, that's the best of them. I want you to meet uh, That's a true story. Wow. All right, let's not talk about mothers. <laughs> We could talk about um, what do you know? What do you know now? This is so like I'm sure people ask you this question all the time because you're 94. Not yet. Oh, they don't ask you yet. Okay. What no, do you no, know? I'm not 94 yet. I'm not 94 yet. Okay. July. Oh, July. Okay. What do you know now that you wish you knew then? You know, like you know, when you're starting out, you're working, you're working, you're working, you're, you know. There were a lot of things I wish I knew, but, but, but I want to make clear, not in a regretful way. Got it. I don't regret anything. Right. It took me 93 years, a bunch of months, weeks, and days, and so forth, just to sit here with you. My whole life to this moment has added up to this moment with you. Yes. Now, that is a fact. And... So I, want, I care about living in this moment and then on to next. 
how did you how did how did you learn that? Do you meditate or something? No, I, I've you know I've tried to meditate. I love the idea of meditation. I've not really been successful at it. You can't shut it down. Well, you know the whole concept is to not shut the brain down. It's just to be present because you're so present. Oh, I'm present. Yeah, no, I'm present. Is that something? Did but you you know where when when I first started to think about this? Uh, People, when people started to ask me, what's Gene Stapleton like? And my answer the first, very first time was, and it startled me, oh, she's always where she is. Oh, I love that. And that's when I, that's the first time I started to think about how important that was. Because that just fell out of me. She always, and then I realized, that's what I want to be, always where I am. So does that mean you're not a worrier? Are you a worrier? I don't think I'm a worrier, no. That's awesome. Like, I never really were? Or kind of like, you know, like, I'm sure there's panic. Like, will, will somebody watch my show? Will somebody, yeah, you know? but that's not, re- that's not that's, right. real worry. Uh, I mean, that's I've not been, really I've been, worry, I've been, see? <laughs> that's... I, I've been concerned, I'm certainly concerned about the welfare of a child or a grandchild or... Uh, but, uh, and... Yeah, I guess you could say worried in that sense. I'm worried about Donald Trump. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, that's some serious worry. I was, uh, I got a kick out of Variety quoted me today on the net anyway. Uh, somebody asked me what I thought of Don- Donald Trump, and I said, I think he's the middle finger of the American right hand. <laughs> hey. Oh, my God. So yeah. true. I don't even know if he's on the right hand, though. I have to, it's the only part I would... I don't know what hand he's on. Okay, let's see. Let me see, Norman. I asked you that question. When did you finally feel successful? Because I know for myself, it took me many years for people to, to say, you're so great, and me to finally go, yeah, I guess I'm okay. You'll, 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 you're, you said you're reading the book. You'll get to this in the book, because I write about that. Uh... I used to get to the airport I, for a great many years. I've flown a lot back and forth across country. So I used to go to the airport a great many years ago, a half hour early, in order to take out flight insurance. And one morning I woke up and thought, wait a minute, I don't need any more insurance. That's when I thought. That's when you knew. Yeah. Because you were a good provider. I was a good provider. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what my little Yiddish grandmother, that's what Boris's mom used to always say, yes, too. A good, Be a good provider. A good, a good provider, provider, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's, that, it's the old country thing. Um, let me see here. Well, I saw you own this copy of the Declaration of Independence, which kind of blew my mind. That was pretty... That's, that, was, that was an extraordinary how, experience. Who, who knew it was for sale? I mean, like... I had read that uh, it was going to be auctioned off on, uh, on the net by Sotheby's. Uh, it was just a little squib in the paper. And uh, one of my daughters at school, I went to school uh, one evening and met a friend of hers whose father was there, and he ran Sotheby's in Southern California. That happened a few days before I saw this little squib. So I had somebody to call. I called and I said, what's happening with this? He said, uh, yeah, we're auctioning it off. 
He told me what it, exactly what it was. It wasn't. Uh, it, it was printed the night of July fourth, seventeen seventy six. Wow. So it wasn't the one that was signed, but it was the one that was printed that night. And I thought, my God, that's my country's birth certificate mm. that night. And uh, he said, Why don't you come over and take a look at it? We have it here in the sh- in the uh, in my showroom. I walked over at lunch, and uh, and. Uh, cried when I saw it and thought this is going to travel if I can get it this is going to travel one night you know but it, it I bought it I know. <laughs> and uh, and here's how you want to know how my life has run five days or ten days or I don't know soon after I bought it uh, I'm trying I just lost his name a, ma- a major corporate guy, anyway, is in town with his two sons who he's taken to look at colleges and wants to meet with me. We've never met before. And I tell him about the declaration. And I, oh, I've already, uh, uh, in Nashville, filmed 50 country western people, uh, country western voices singing America the Beautiful. Wow. Great, greatest rendition of it. And uh, I was able to show it to him. When it ended, he said, how much, because I, I told him I wanted a tour, he said, how much are you looking for? I said, $30 million. He said, you have half of it. Wow. And he shook my hand. Wow. So it was easy to raise the money. The Postal Service gave me a 16-wheeler. Um, we had a great uh, uh, ex- ex- exhibit and... Uh, that broke down. It could play in small places. It could fill, as it did, uh, the uh, uh, the state house uh, in uh, for the uh, Winter Olympics in Utah. And I loved you carrying that torch. Yes. Here you are running <laughs> in front of everybody. And I have this distinct pleasure of George Bush, uh, and I have it on film. Is it in the film? Yeah, it's on the it's film. In the room. Yeah. You yeah. saw it. We did. We just saw it. Is there a reason? Is there a particular reason? I'm just flipping around. Oh, now that's the one light that means... Does that mean 30 minutes, you guys? Somebody? Okay. 15. Oh, wow, Norman. All right, I'm going to ask Time one more. Time goes when you're having Time fun. goes far by, yeah. So you, were, you write a lot about families. A lot of your shows are focused on families. Um... Was there a reason that that was so important to you rather than writing, like, an office comedy necessarily? Or even though maybe you did, and I don't remember. But what I remember of Norman Lear shows were they were family shows. And they were, you know... It's true, isn't it? I'm trying to think of... Yeah, Mary Hartman. Well, I did Fernwood Tonight. That was a great show. That was an awesome show. That was a great show. But was it because you were concerned with those family relationships? I guess. Yeah. <laughs> let's, um, let's open it up to audience questions. If there's anybody, is there like a guy with a mic or something? Oh, there's the mic. Okay, so you, sir, with the glasses right there. That you, right in the way, Yes. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. Hello to both of you. Um, in your book, 
you have a picture of you and Alex Haley with two kids on your shoulders. Yes. From Palmerstown, USA, and it's not as that show's not as documented. Um, I want to ask you, do you remember those boys? And actually, I've been wanting to reconnect you with one of them. He's a good friend of mine. Really? Yes. He's sitting right over here, actually. Oh, for crying out loud. Hi. How great. How great. Could you, could you talk a little bit about the journey through the South to, to pick those kids for that show? Well, I don't remember about that specific journey, but, you know, Alex Haley and I became good friends and one day he was telling me about his youth and, and uh, he told me that his best friend when he was seven years old was a white kid and that the two families were so cl- became close because the boys just loved one another and, uh, and you're that boy wow wow so there's no easy Huh? No, the boy that we cast, not the boy. But. So, uh, and, and then when puberty set in, uh, girls and so forth and society and the culture and so forth, it caused them to fall apart. Oh. The, the relationship, I said, Alex, if that isn't a five-year run, if that isn't a great show, I don't know one. So we did it. Oh. It was called Palmer's Time USA. My favorite memory of it, it was, it was a very early Morgan Freeman oh, uh, wow. debut, I think. He might, it might have even been a debut. It was a two-parter. He was the pitcher of a black uh, a ball club that was passing through town. They're trying to get a game with a white group. Wow. And, oh, it's just, it, was, it was great. I don't know why it didn't last. We, I thought we did a really good job with that. Uh, but it was on for 13 weeks or something. Sometimes that happens. So you, there's a photograph. You're the kid that's on my back? Huh? Yes. Come up here, let me see. <laughs> right. Oh, for crying yeah, out loud. <laughs> and you're still black. Yeah. <laughs> I love seeing it. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, stick around. That's awesome. <laughs> that was great. So okay, we, we, this is a photograph. I had, a, uh, uh, I had him on my shoulders, and Alex had a white kid on his shoulders. Uh, by the way, Michael J. Fox came from that show. Oh, he really? was he was Canadian. He didn't have a green card. We helped him get a green card. He saved. He played the older brother of uh, you know, the White family. Wow, wow, that's great. Okay, Don. Thank you. Hello. I'm a filmmaker, and I just wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart for all the inspiration. I know you hear it all the time, and I'm here to thank you. I also believe that I, like yourself, um, have um, a responsibility to, to share that we are all bonded, and I wanted, in my work, to be the voice also of those that don't have that privilege. So with that in mind, I was just curious. My work, as I said, is um, about filmmaking. And I was wondering, do you ever share that vision where you want to take yours to a larger screen in that way, to the film world? 
Isn't that what we're doing here? <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were sharing. I think we are sharing on a what very... Would you but, make, but what, what, what would you make... What film would you make if you were going to put it on the big screen? What would the subject matter be? Or do you have that vision, is my question. You know, you, we sit around all for, for days talking about this kind of thing. Uh, there are so many subjects. You'd make well, a movie well, starring me. I would certainly wish to... Do, <laughs> you'd, let, you'd star me in the movie. We'd make a big... Yes, maybe... Uh, maybe... Uh, Guess Who Died as a movie Guess instead of a TV That's series. right, exactly. There you go. My son, I have a son, 28 years old. He had a film that just played the L.A. Film Festival. Did I tell you about this? You were just on backstage. And uh, uh, it's called uh, They Call Us Monsters. And it's about uh, incarcerated kids. Kids who, are, who were serving life sentences and triple life sentences and so forth for crimes they committed when they were 12, 14 years old. Uh, and, and didn't have a chance. So, uh, I mean, th- there's a subject ripe for you know, America, America's understanding what our prison system is, is doing to our culture. So it's in the family. Thank you. Hello, Mr. Lear. Um, I also, too, would like to thank you so much because it is uh, being a child in Gary, Indiana, in the projects, watching Good Times, it, you know, gave me that reflection of myself and made me want to become an actor. Um, So you said you were doing a version of One Day at a Time. I've heard talk about the Good Times reunion or it coming back. Is that going to happen? And if it is, are you going to be a part of it? And can she have a job? Yes. And, and what? Yes. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. <laughs> I was going to say, can she have a job? Uh, it, there is a film in work, uh, and I'm not a part of it. Oh. My library belongs to uh, Sony, and uh, uh, Scott Rudin actually oh. is supposed to be making a, uh, a, a, a yeah, a amount. Uh, a big screen version of uh, of Good Times, but I am not a part of that. Oh, I'm sad to hear that. But you're hired anyway. Thank you. I'll, t- I'll tell them. She's cute. She should work. Okay, who's next? Hi, Mr. Lear. I just wanted to thank you for all the gifts that you bestowed onto this world and to us, and uh, share with you a story. My father was of your generation, a couple years older than you, and I lost him as a young boy. Um, And one of my most vivid memories is sitting around with the family, watching All in the Family, and having my dad just rolling over laughter. And he was always such a kind of a stoic and strict and kind of conservative uh, man. And to see him laughing to, to this day just leaves such an impression on me. And that's one of my most vivid memories of my father. And that's due to uh, the gift that you gave us through the, the television. And so thank you very much. For that. Oh, I appreciate And I'm sure that's just one of millions of stories that, that like that. So I had a question for you. Um, seeing what the moral minority has kind of turned into to this day and, and kind of what's morphed into... Uh, or the, the the conservative right wing of this nation. Um, do you feel? I would just like your commentary on you know 
we obviously know about Donald Trump and all that, but what, what do you feel, do you get any satisfaction that that played out and was really kind of shown, the moral majority was shown to be what it was thanks to your the work that you did and, and others did to kind of bring that to the forefront of kind of really showing their true colors? And then the to the extent that it's kind of dwarfed into what it's dwarfed into now, if that, if that question makes sense yeah. to you. That. It, it, it connects with the question you were asking earlier about, uh, you know, I, I didn't really leave the shows. I was doing something else. I didn't stop. Uh, 1980, uh, I was terribly concerned about the proliferation of TB evangelicals. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, all of the Pat Robertsons and Jerry Falwells and... Uh, it. The way they were uh, uh, mixing politics and religion just uh, scared the hell out of me. And uh, People for the American Way was a result of that, but I didn't sit down to do uh, to start a national organization. I, I wouldn't have thought of that. What I did was a, uh, a public service announcement, a 60-second public service announcement that had a guy sitting on a piece of factory equipment uh, a guy who lived it actually talking from his heart he said uh, you know my wife and I and I, we sit around with our kids and the, over dinner we're talking politics and we're arguing about things and uh, we don't agree but here come all these ministers on radio and television and in the mail telling us we're, we're good Christians or bad Christians depending on our political points of view he said, well, I happen to agree with the ministers on a lot of that stuff. Uh, my wife doesn't. I know she's a better Christian than I am. And they're saying she isn't. He said, anyway, he winds up saying, there's got to be something wrong when anybody tells you you are a good or a bad Christian, depending on your political point of view. That's not the American way. So, so I... I I showed it to, you know, I, I, we made it, and then I showed it to a number of my associates, and they said, you know, you got three strikes against you. You're Jewish. You're taking on the religious right. You're Jewish. You, you, you're, you're a Hollywood product. So I flew to, I knew Father Hesburgh at Notre Dame, and I flew to Notre Dame, and I showed it to him, and he said, uh, I'll never forget what he said. he said. He said, you know, you'll find that mainline church leaders will agree with this. That's not the American way. And he said, but another thing, uh, mainline church leaders are feeling that you may not know about is they can't bear how they, meaning the moral majority, tortures scripture. You know, they torture scripture. I couldn't forget that phrase. And, uh, and he gave me the names of other mainline church leaders, and I went around the country seeing them and having them sign on to this uh, PSA. But in one of those meetings, somebody said, you know, you're going to have to uh, put a group together around this PSA. Uh, and uh, I like what he says at the end. That's not the American way. You ought to be people for the American way. So that's how the organization started. I've taken a long time to answer your question. Thank you. Thank you. That's okay. Hi. 
Um, my name is Kimberly. I also am very inspired by all your work, and it's why I wanted to work in television myself. I'm in casting, and uh, I. I'm Jewish. I'm from Long Island, New York, and now I live in Los Angeles. And I just, oh, <laughs> yay, Long Island! <laughs> but I just always, I noticed growing up that there were never a sitcom, a, a family show about a Jewish family. There was the Goldbergs in the early '50s. There's some new Goldbergs now, but nothing in between. And did you ever? think about or want to make a, a show about a Jewish family, or is there a reason that you didn't? You know, in my eyes, they're all Jewish. <laughs> Good answer. Uh, you know, in a sense, I, I mean that in the same way I mean we're all versions of each other. You know, uh, when I cast uh, Carol O'Connor, uh, there were a lot of people in the network, especially, who said, you know, he's Irish. You've got to, he's, he's got to be Irish Catholic. And, uh, but I didn't want to label any religion or ethnicity as a bigot. And I thought that would happen if he, you know. Uh, so as Irish looking as, and as, as his name, as he was, the show was saying, He's not necessarily, we didn't make him anything. Uh, and everybody accepted that, you know, whether they thought he might have been Irish or, 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 or not, it just never came up. So when I say, uh, and I had this argument with, uh, on, on Good Times, when uh, the fact that these these were the first African-Americans that were representing mothers and fathers, families uh, on television. And they had a, a weight they needn't have had, but, they, but it was so understandable. They didn't want to do anything wrong as the first representatives of their race in a family situation. So when we wished to deal with Thelma, who was as attractive as any woman ever on television, 15, 16 years old, boys hitting on her, and we wanted to deal with that subject. Esther Roll was, you know, concerned about uh, dealing in that subject. They were the, because of the weight of the fact that she was the first representative of a black family mother. And uh, so that's when, you know, we had to talk about you know, you know the patina. I'm not black. I didn't grow up in your culture. But I am a brother. I am a father. I am a son. I am, you know, all of the male uh, relationships in family life I understand. And uh, I'm going to have to, the book has to stop with me even though I'm not black. And we're going to deal with this subject. It's a, a long answer to we're, we're all the same. I mean, they were all Jewish families. You know, it's so funny. In that movie, oh, and then we have to stop. But in the movie, I did notice how well you dealt with, um, I'm not going to use the word temperamental, but being an actor myself, somewhat emotional, kind of asking a lot of questions. You're so good with the actors in terms of answering their questions and 
calming it. And I wondered, though, if there was any one of those, I mean, you can answer or not, that just drove you nuts. <laughs> or did they, you know... Because I live with a writer, and I hear him talk about actors that drive him nuts. Uh, I hate talking about because I love John Amos. Right. But he John Amos was uh, the father in good times, for those of you who may not remember. And uh, he's a wonderful actor. And, uh, but he was capable of doing this. We made, I did a show called 704 Hauser, which was a black family moving into the house that the Bunkers had lived in all those years. And, uh, and he, we, we did a pre-shoot one day. We had to shoot a scene one day in rehearsal uh, because we couldn't do that scene in front of an audience. So we had it in the in the bank and while we're rehearsing the other scenes the day after we shot the pre-shoot he was going to be a little late because he was going to the barber shop when he came in uh, after the barber shop he didn't have a hair on his head oh my god. <laughs> his, he had been we, we were filming the day before oh my god. <laughs> and he came in that would drive you nuts <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we had to wait another 30 hours or something until we could make the hair. But <laughs> the geniuses who do that did that, and we went on. But that was the, the most difficult. The question was, what was the most difficult? That was the most difficult time I had. See, that's the stuff actor. nobody knows that happens behind the scenes, you know. Actors show up tattooed when there was no tattoo the day before. <laughs> yeah. Haircut, no um, I'm not sure what this red light means. Does that mean we're done? What about the answer to the where can we get this movie? Because I don't know. Is it, It's going to have a release, I think? Well, or? it's going to be in theaters. It's going to be on Netflix. Uh, and it'll be on American Masters on PBS. So we will, it will have a light. Sure. All right. So I think we're... I think we're done, Norman. So here's what we're going to do. Okay. We're going to go out and shop for a big bed. And we're all going to get in it. Yay. So what are we, about 400 people? <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're all excused. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. to have Deborah Birnbaum as our moderator. Come on up. David Windsor, Hollis Rich, Phil Rosenthal, Nanachka Khan, and Norman Lear.
Whatever you want. This one's yours. I'm going to move you guys around. This is you. Here we go. Here we go. There we go. Where are you chasing? That's yours. All right. Okay. Don't be so bossy already. That's my job. And the sitcom's already begun. Hello. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd like to start a sitcom with this group. Can we do that? <laughs> so, I'll be the cute girl. <laughs> your cast, absolutely. So it feels like, you know, from my perspective, at least on television, that family sitcoms have had a renaissance, um, thanks in part to some of the people on this panel right now. Why do you think that's happening right now? Natch, do you want to start? Sure. Uh, whoa. Um, <laughs> hi. Uh, why do I think that's happening? I just think that... Uh, for me, I think it's probably tied to the different platforms that are now available, you know, breaking away from even, you know, the four networks, then basic cable, then pay cable, and there's just so much uh, need for new content that I think that there are more opportunities for people to sort of come at, come at it from like an outsider perspective, you know what I mean? And uh, sort of not the thing, the typical stuff that you've been seeing, you know, I, that's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, great star. <laughs> Thank you. David, what about you? You've certainly been able to push the boundaries of what's, you know, on broadcast cable. On yeah. broadcast television. I feel like there's, you know, there's, we're coming back to that, what is familiar and what is comfortable. I think in the last 10 years, I love that how television has gone out there and tried new things. And, and we're sort of coming back to... You know, these family shows, like Phil's show, like all of Norman's shows, that really are reminiscent of our own families. And, um, and But we're able to also bring in the new way that people are making television and, and pushing those boundaries more. Um, you know, it's really fun. On, on my show, I love being able to, to, to be able to do both. Um, I think it's, you know, sort of the comfortableness of... of and familiarity of, of those family shows. You're going to shoot season two on your iPhone, right? Yeah, definitely. Like the whole thing. Yeah. That's what I heard, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Lear, I know you visited the set at Blackish. Why week. am I not Norman? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm in awe right now. I'm just trying to remain calm and form complete sentences. I'm saying too far. <laughs> okay, thank you. I know you visited the set of Blackish this year. Can you talk about that experience? I'm sorry, say again? I know you visited the set of Blackish this year. Can you talk oh, about that experience? I, I, yeah, no, I love Kenya and I love the show. But I've also visited um, uh, Carmichael and enjoyed that too. I, I love live uh, actors working with a live audience. It's just not like it's theater and uh, the, the writing and the acting and the audience. You know, it's riding the emotions of all three elements, and it's, I love them. And, and those shows are all in front of live audiences. It seems like modern TV has sort of moved away from live audiences, or, you know, there's, we can talk about the multicam versus um, single cam. Can you all weigh in on how you feel about that? Go, Phil. <laughs> it all starts with him. This was my biggest influence as a, as a kid. I was watching All in the Family and understanding that this was like theater. And, and if, if, if content and character is strong enough, you don't have to move around. You don't have to go to the car and then another car and then the, 
the bathroom and then the coffee shop and then the airport and then the airplane and then, you know, I call that the illusion of entertainment where at the end of 20 minutes so many things flashed in front of your eyes, so many sets and costumes and hairstyles and things that you thought you were entertained. But when you watched All in the Family, for example, you were sucked in by the character and the content. They didn't move, they stayed in the two chairs the whole time. <laughs> right? And, the, and it went very quickly and you remembered every second of it. So... I could hear them all day. Oh. <laughs> and so, you know, it's like having a great conversation with someone that you really like. The time goes quickly, right? And if they're saying important things and maybe you're learning a thing or two, it becomes, you know, indelible. So that was just, I can't say one kind of thing is better than... No, let's say it. It's better. <laughs> I'd like to weigh in for just a moment. I mean, that was my early training was in half hour live, uh, not live, but it felt live. And I think what's interesting <coughs> when you develop a show that way is each week it is like working on a little theater piece because you're in rehearsal and you go through the run through and then you rewrite and you rewrite and it's tremendous training, I think, for writers. And I think it, it shows you sort of what's gold and what stays, even though, you know, the third day out, it doesn't seem funny to you, but you kind of know it will, it will work. And I think it helps. Um, I think it helps writers develop that kind of instinct for comedy, um, and then to hear it in the audience. And then to, it's a wonderful training ground. Um, and yes, the immediacy of having the audience. There's nothing like that. That energy that it gives to the actors. It's very, very special. Do you then rewrite on the fly if something's not working in front of the live audience? Uh, absolutely. I remember when I started, uh, you know, you would rewrite at the dinner hour. Everyone would have dinner, and then they'd bring in a, a new audience. And uh, you better have some jokes ready for the new audience or you're sort of in trouble. So, yeah, you did. You learned to sort of produce rapidly and, um, and not be too precious about it. Uh, and, you know, a large part of television, and particularly that style, is producing under, under pressure um, and just keeping, you know, just doing it. Um, so it's tremendous training for writers, directors, and everyone. And, I, it, you know, I can't imagine what it must have been in live television because that felt very, you know, tense already in a good way. I think people who like this kind of would like to be, you know, have sort of an energy thing where they... Everyone was in this together. Let's do this. So, how topical can you get? How far can you feel like you can push the boundaries when you're when you're doing live television? I mean, live television. Like, I, you know, I think that uh, it just depends when your production cycle is. You know, like South Park is amazing in, in how timely they're able to be, especially with animation. So, but they, you know, they work around the clock for nonstop for weeks at a time and months at a time to get there, to make sure that they're the most current they can be. So I think, you know, it just depends on how you, when you want to air, when you shoot stuff. I mean, like we were talking about Netflix now, you do all 13 and put them all up together. So it's like, you know, I think it's, I think the probably, you know, as you're airing, um, as stuff is happening in the news, you know, like with this election year, I think a lot of the fall shows will come out and sort of start dealing with, you know, the timing is going to work out that way, I think. Norman, did you have to, ever have to change something in the show because by the time you, you aired it, the topical thing you had mentioned had changed somehow? Uh, no, I, I don't remember that happening. Because we, you know, we made a show in, uh, in March and it was on right. before Pretty April true. ended. Right. And, you know, we weren't that far ahead. 
Now I'm doing, uh, we're doing a new version of One Day at a Time, a Cuban-American version of One Day at a Time. We're making all 13 before the first one airs. That's a brand new experience. So we, don't, we, we won't learn whatever it was we learned from a live national audience, you know, what they appreciated. Uh, so are you avoiding topical? Not, not at all. But, you know, topical for me is, you know, what the juice of life. It's always topical. People are always saying to me, nothing's changed. All in the family, where everything we ever did would work today and does work today for the people who are seeing it, you know, for the first time, all these years later. Because we were dealing largely with problems that are eternal. They don't go away. They're human. Trump. <laughs> I, I, uh, I view uh, Donald Trump as the middle finger of the American right hand. <laughs> and it's the American people saying, this is the kind of leadership you give us. Nice setup. <laughs> that almost you, sounds Phil. like pro-Trump. <laughs> so, given that you know, given the way that Netflix is working, are you going to be able to work your politics or your point of view into the shows that you're writing now? Well, it's it's. Uh, I'm learning a great deal too because uh, one of the showrunners is herself, of course, a Cuban American. So we are dealing, uh, they're human though, they're the same problems we dealt with years ago, but they come out of uh, the Latin experience. So I'm learning a great deal as we go along too, and it's, and it's great. And it's everyday problems, which were as, uh, as much with us and as true, you know, 40 years ago as, as today. We don't change a lot, we humans. What's amazing to me to watch is now it feels like the, the subjects of diversity that you were talking about 40 years ago are now finally coming back and we're able to talk about them now. You were at the forefront of that. Why do you think it took us 40 years to be able to come back and kind of have these conversations again? Well, I think, uh, you know, the proliferation of, of, uh, of stations and cable stations and so forth. I, th this is the moment. This is the golden age. A, because it's the moment we're experiencing it. You know, like this moment, it took you, all of you, every split second of your lives just to get here to look at the, look, you're all looking in this direction. <laughs> you just heard me say the word direction. You never heard me say it before. <laughs> and you spend every split second of your life just to hear me say direction. So this is the moment. I'm satisfied. I feel like I've made right choices in life to, to get me right here to hear you say that, all that. So getting back to the subject of family, so how do you go about creating a TV family? Is it about chemistry when it comes to casting? Money. <laughs> they don't come otherwise. <laughs> it's chem it is chemistry. It is. And, and all the planets have to line up for these things to be right. When you think about, let's say, Norman shows, any of, any of our shows, you think of the, the cast that you like, you, try, you take one person out that's maybe not the same show anymore. 
right? So that's very, it's, it's like the way your family works. And by the way, every TV show, regardless of genre, I mean a new show, I mean a cop show, every show is about a family. Absolutely. So, so this is just a, you know, kind of a metaphor for all the shows that you love, all the things that you watch on TV, it's all, every, the Today Show, that's a family of people who you like being with in the morning, you have to yeah, there's, there's, there's a family on the air and then there's a family of people who make it. Exactly. And they have to have chemistry too. It is always such a special thing because, you know, as writers, you sit in a dark room by yourself and write, create this family that you hope is going to come across the way you want to. But if you don't, like Phil was saying, if you don't have that cast, if you're missing one person, it all could fall apart. But when it does all come together, I mean, you know, their shows, our show, we have this amazing cast that then takes what we've written and makes it so much better. And that, for me, that's the most satisfying thing is writing something and then giving it to someone else who then makes it better. And I, I'm always shocked when that happens and, and so pleased. And, and you know, I, I always just feel so honored that's, that an actor understands what we're trying to do and then, you know, takes it and makes it their own. And, and then brings it to life. Yeah. It's just words on paper until that, I mean, I, the miracle of that is forever a miracle for me, too. And we were talking, David and I, because we are single camera shows, you know, we don't get that audience feedback. And, you know, so for us, it's really the table read where, you know, as the writer in the writer's room, you're working, you're working, you think something's going to work in theory. It's making you guys laugh. And then when you hear the cast read it, it, it either comes to life and it sings and people are reacting the way you want or it just falls flat. And you're like, this is not at all funny. <laughs> like, what and you want to kill yourself. And you want to kill yourself. Yeah. It's a rough. It's a rough Tuesday at that point. <laughs> but then it could work on camera. It could right. work as because you're making movies every week. Yeah. It is a different form. Yeah. And what you and what you were saying, Phil, about you know that the people who make the show are also a family. Um, uh, my writing partner is in the audience, Brenda Lilly, and Ooh, where Hello. over there, she's over hey. there, she's hey. over there. I said I would mention you. <laughs> See, this is what you do for family. Yeah. Brenda, I'm sorry she didn't get you a better seat. <laughs> See, this is uh, okay. So I guess I've made my point without really making it. But um, but the idea of you know when you the show that we wrote was very much based on our families, and um, when you bring that and. And the thing is, even if it's not supposedly your family, it is your family. It's always your family. Writers always bring, you know, their experiences. But when you're specifically writing about family, I think it's a really rich stew. You know, you get people in a room, and uh, there's just endless material. And I think you're right, Phil. I mean, it is when you look at all of the shows, I see so much. Even these procedural shows, and in recent years more, have emphasized they're always a family. The relationships are more emphasized, and I think that's wonderful. It humanizes the show, and it makes the people real. And um, you know, television is a very unique medium. It's very personal. How do you run your writers' rooms? Do you encourage your writers to bring stories about their own families? Is that where you get your ideas from? That was the job. If you worked for me, your job was to go home, get in a fight with your wife, come back in and tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have, I've always uh, told writers to read a couple of papers a day. 
We had, uh, for those who didn't get the New York Times or something, we had it in the office. Uh, and pay attention to their kids and their mates and their families and the neighborhoods and the problems of the moment in those neighborhoods and the larger neighborhoods, the country and so forth. Uh, and that's what we came in and, you know, somebody walks in on uh, writing on Good Times and says, did you see this article about hypertension in black males? It's on the rise, and it's way above the, uh, their white counterparts. Well, John Amos, that's a great subject for a story. And uh, then you find you do the show, and you find there were tens of thousands of, uh, or thousands of telephone calls across the country from black families who were interested in the subject and wanted more information. When you went into reruns, the network had taken, uh, I don't think they gave up commercial time, <laughs> but they took some of the time out of the show and had an you know, advisement at the end of the show so people had an answer to the question about where they could find more information. Uh, so how did I get there? <laughs> I was asking about how you ran your writer's room. I'm sorry? I was asking about how you ran your writer's room. Well, that, uh, it started with uh, read a newspaper, pay a lot of attention to your family, let's come in and talk about what's happening in our lives. That's the way Phil, from what he said, ran his. And that's how I learned from you and Carl Reiner. Carl Reiner said, what happened at your house this weekend? That's how he did the Penn Night Show. I thought this show is the, the, we could use that methodology. We also made sure, this is no small thing, that we went home at a reasonable hour because that's where the stories were coming from. You can't write about real life unless you have one. <laughs> right? That's absolutely true. Like, you can't write about, otherwise your stories are going to be about, like, the Xerox Ooh. machine. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's no Diet Coke left in the fridge. Like, it's so boring. You need to experience it. Why is it boring? <laughs> but it's also, you know, from growing on Fresh Off the Boat, you know, so much of it is... Uh, <laughs> writers coming into the room with their like their own experience and their family's experience because we're trying to tell sort of the immigrant story you know when when your parents are not born here and you are born here what does that feel like to be that sort of bridge generation between the outside world and the world in your house and there's so many for, you know our writers are we have so many different backgrounds so many different experiences but it's amazing how many things are universal once you break it down to that level like the more specific you get the more universal it is and for us, like, that's everything. You know, that's, that's all the stories. How many Asian writers are on the show, on staff? I think there's 14 writers. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. And, you know, some of them are part-time. Um, out of 14, I think there's about uh, six, five or six. Korean, Vietnamese, Chinese, Taiwanese, you know, all different kinds of cultures. You yeah, know, that's enough. <laughs> well, that's going to be my next question. How do you staff your writer's room? Do you look for diversity? I mean, I would say, you know, ask all of you this question. Do you look I for don't diversity? Care. I, I don't care if you're white, black, Asian, female, as long as you write like an old Jew. <laughs> <laughs> Equal opportunity. And it's amazing how many do. <laughs> say one thing that um, I do like in, in a writer's room, uh, whether I'm staffing it or whether I'm just part of the room, um, is I like a diversity of ages in the room. And um, 
because coming up, I do remember I, when I was one of the young ones, there would be a whole, you know, sort of a bell curve. Well, not really a bell. I guess it would go and then just drop off very sh- and then sharply. Died. Then people would die. Right. So it's not really a bell. It's really, but. Um, but it was wonderful because it, it, I think it really enriched the uh, the writing on the show. Um, it gave it a kind of depth that to be, and perspective. To be honest, that sometimes I think uh, I might miss a little uh, in today's programming. Um, I think it's really important to have intergenerational work, particularly in comedy too. Uh, I think in all aspects, but in comedy, you know, comedy's a, a you know I. I am. I'm not going to philosophize on comedy with Norman Lear here, but it's a. It's a. You know, it's a very ephemeral thing, and I do believe that it. You know, to come out of that kind of mix makes it stronger and more powerful in a way I can't really quite define. Um, and it also makes more interesting stories in the room, frankly. And you know, people get to learn about things that happened before they were born, which I think is always fun. So. You know, for our show, because it, I, I'm not gay, but our main character is, it was important that we fill out our room with gay people so that we can make that experience as authentic as possible. And, and you know, getting back to your point of, like, how do you staff your show? Like, we wanted those people that had no shame and weren't afraid of telling those awful, wonderful, embarrassing stories, as especially as it pertained to being gay and coming out um, and you know I think we've found that balance in, in all of our gay writers and our, and our straight writers I mean you know there is a universality to being a teenager and, and having life experiences that are embarrassing and, and truly I think that that's where the funniest moments come in a show or those really awful embarrassing moments that you now as an adult have perspective on and you feel okay about sharing them with millions of people out in the world all of your words are precious, of course, but do you ever let your cast into the writer's room? Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, of course. I mean, the, it, it's so crazy on a single cam because we are making a little movie every week, so the hours are nuts. But, um, you know, if they're always invited to come in and sort of see what we're working on and stuff like that. I mean, I, I, don't let, I feel like transparency is the best thing. You know, there's no reason to hold anything because everyone's on the same page like we're all in the same boat we're all in the same family we're all trying to make the best show we can I don't know what do you guys do depends on the actor that's real right (laughs) I could show you something you don't want them in the room I mean any room I don't know about in the room all the time but um, it's not when Brenda and I were doing State of Grace, it was a while ago, but we tried to have somewhat of an open-door policy, um, and that was nice. But at some point, you do have to shut the door, I think, because the work is different. Um, but it's... I think everyone needs to feel part of the process um, sometimes. And also the actor, you know, they're the ones that have to understand what they're saying, how they're playing something. And so the, you, you do have to have a dial, an open dialogue with them and let them feel like they can come to you and share their thoughts and then sort of put that through your filter and, and give it back to them. I think among the various ethnicities and uh, it's the patina that changes, but we're all kids and parents and brothers or sisters or uncles or aunts or nieces or 
nephews. I mean, we share the same basic human conditions. And I think uh, my bumper sticker reads, just another version of you. <laughs> and I think we are all just versions of each other. So working with the African-American families that we did those years ago, uh, we, you know, don't you find that in a show like uh, uh, you're doing now, fresh off the boat, that I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know the show as well as I wish I did, so I could talk about this. But I'll get you all the episodes. Don't, <laughs> don't you find that 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 those people, the Asian people, who are representing their uh, people for the world have a sense of responsibility about how what the stories are and what they're playing and everything else because they're representing something that hasn't existed on television before Absolutely. and it's weighty yeah i mean it's that thing representation is everything and we did an episode this year where the father played by randall park uh gets an opportunity to be on television and he almost has a meltdown because of the burden of representation. He's trying to be everything to all people. Right. And he forgets who he is. And the, the truth is, you can't be everything to all people. You can be true to what you're trying to say, and hopefully other people relate to it and find a common ground. But, you know, when there's only one of anything, it's almost impossible to bear that right. weight. And what you hope for is, in your success, other shows will come and more people will get opportunities that they never got before. And I think you're seeing that now, you know, and I think because of shows like yours and because of what you guys have sort of, you know, set the table, it took a long time to get where we are for some reason. You know, we sort of went into that, like, you know, valley. We went from a peak into a valley, and now hopefully we're coming out of it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think it's all important, you know. I'm curious, what shows, other than your own, of course, are you guys watching now? What shows do you think are doing well in comedy? I love Broad City. Um, I think it's an amazing show. I think those girls are telling their own story, and, you know, they truly just are, are just trying to be different and interesting and original, which I love. I, I really love what Blackish is doing. I think they're... I think, yeah. It's very funny. It's also... <laughs> got such a strong message it's talking about things that are happening in the world that you know that the hope episode that they did about the about the uh police brutality while not the funniest episode was so moving to me and it really i remember coming back to the room and being like guys there this that show is about something so meaningful that i want to do more of that and while also being funny it's a, it's a really tricky balance to do something about some do a show about something and also have it be funny and I think Blackish does that really really well and Carmichael is doing Absolutely. that too yeah <laughs> and there's another show it, it, it's only been on uh, I don't know how many 13 or so or maybe 20 episodes uh, I'll have what Phil's having <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine who's making that yeah <laughs> But it's really daring as hell. It's act I hear it's very explicit, so... <laughs> Phil, what about you? What are you watching? I just blasted through a show. Did you guys watch Horace and Pete? No. Uh, no. I just got the DVD. What? Watch it. You know what I'm talking about? No. So Louis C.K., with his own money, 
put together a show that he sells on his website. And it's extraordinary. It harkens back to Playhouse 90. It's filmed multicam without an audience, so it's silent. He wants yeah. it silent, and it, it's almost like Eugene O'Neill. It's extraordinary. There's moments of humor, but it's, it's pretty dark. Who, is he what? writing? Who's writing? He wrote and directed and stars in these ten episodes, and you've never seen anything like it. It's such a ballsy, big swing. I, I, I can't say enough about let's, it. Let's do that this afternoon. Yes. <laughs> well, I'll come to your room and watch <laughs> But it's quality. It's, it's quality stuff. It's, it, I, I haven't seen anything like it. So I recommend that. That's what, what, what's it called, Phil? Horace and Pete. Horace and Pete. It's amazing. I haven't even heard of it. And a cast like you can't believe. Steve Buscemi, Edie Falco. You guys, who saw it here? Anybody? Am I lying? You liked it? Yeah, it's good, right? Yeah, good for you. Where, 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 what's it on? Uh, it's on his website. Do you, you get the Emmy screeners? Yes. Then you got the DVDs for free. Oh. <laughs> I, my, 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 my house is sinking under the yes. weight of it. <laughs> it's really stupid. How many you get? Pretty what much. we need is a link now, right? And they insist on sending boxes and boxes of the, the, the landfill waste. <laughs> That's another panel. <laughs> no, I'm going now, obviously. Well, what about you? What are you watching? Well, I still, uh, I, I still appreciate Transparent, and I have to admit I have not caught up to the second season. However, I thought it was a really sort of a groundbreaking show with fantastic performances and edgy and um, I split my time between LA and the Bay Area, so I also I'm kind of addicted to Silicon Valley. It's oh, I just love that. Yeah. Oh, I think it's, it's a great ensemble funny. cast. Yeah, I think the writing is very sharp, and yeah, it's, a good family, it's finely right? observed. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. A family, yes. those guys. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Remember that bit with the English bulldog? Does anybody remember? Yes, that? I do. That was, that killed me. Small. So uh, yes, they have those very small, finely observed moments, and living the in the Bay Area. The horse. <laughs> but you know what? That was not so good. That was crazy. We, we can't talk about that. What am, I, what am I watching? Also, Why am I excited? Also, Veep is a great show too. Yes, Veep is killing it. Um, this year, last year, it's tight, tight writing. How did you all come up with the ideas for your shows? Oh my god! <laughs> how does that? How, I mean, you know, in general, how do you? How do you? How does an idea spark for you? You watch Norman shows and you rip it off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll do this quickly and then I'll let the rest of the panel okay. you. Uh, so Brenda, Lily, and I did a show. It was, it's, it's, we're having a reunion here. It was 15 years ago, and we basically sat down and um, it was uh, and compared our life stories and smushed them together. So she's from the South and went to a Catholic high school where apparently there was a girl that her best friend who was Jewish. But why was she at this high school? And she played Mary every year in the play. And I was like, I think that's. It's true. It's all true. And I, you know, and I thought, and I said, I think that's a show. She says that she thought it was a show. So we argued about that, and then uh, we sort of sold it. Um, we just basically, there was something we wanted to look at our childhood too, and and and, on, and more seriously, we wanted to do a coming of age show about two girls coming of age because we were seeing a lot of boys coming of age, and we thought that the girls coming of age was as fun and adventurous and multi-dimensional as boys, and. Um, 
So anyway, that's how we did it. It was very autobiographical. Uh, I just think, you know, every year when you're working in television and you're working on other people's shows and you're coming up, you always hear, like, what the thing is they want in terms of development. It's like, this year, we want, you know, two girls living on a ranch. It's like, you know, or whatever. And it changes every year. And then forget that. Next year, we want a doctor show and what this and that. And uh, I think as young writers, the pressure to conform to what people want or what the industry wants is really intense. And I think once you sort of break out of that and decide, you know what, I'm just going to write what I want to see, stories that I want to tell, things that have happened to me or happened to friends of mine, um, that's when you start to make really good and true television that resonates with people. Like, I guarantee, you know, Louis C.K. wasn't like, what do people want? Let me do Horse and Pete. You know, like, he decided he wanted to do this kind of show and... I think when you sort of approach it from a place of, of reality and authenticity um, and you break away from the idea of trying to fit into that box, that that's where the real sort of material starts to come from, you know, whatever that means for you, whether it's workplace, family, kids, parents, um, friends living in the city, whatever, you know. You always hear, you know, write what you know, and, and I, it's really true. I mean... You want to be able to, day in and day out for weeks, hopefully months and then years at a time, relate to this thing that you're writing. Otherwise, it's going to be a struggle. And, and so for us, you know, we all have families and, and they're all crazy. And so we, that's what we knew. And, and uh, you know, it's I've been on shows where you don't know, you can't relate to that. And it's very, very difficult. I mean, you really have to be... You have to be able to sort of put everything that's in here out there. And, and so I think that's really important. And that's what I think is tricky with comedy. When you get into the high concept, like, clearly that pitch sold in the room. But how do you sustain it? Because comedy is all character. So it's like they're, they're you know, high schoolers, but they're also vampires. It's like, <laughs> all right, okay. Now you're a slave to that premise every <laughs> Exactly. Week. Then you're like, now we're doing a vampire show? Like, what is this show? How do we tell this? What are the stories here? Yeah, you pitch a show. A guy and his family live across the street from his parents. Nobody's jumping up and down. Wow. <laughs> that's a sexy idea. You got to have that show. But that's the show that can stay on for nine years because there's an infinite number of real-life possible situations. You know, you make them from Mars, and suddenly now you have to make the Mars jokes every week, and that gets tired. Yes, and it did get. And why was the time right for a remake of One Day at a Time? I, I didn't hear the Sorry, question. why was the time yeah. right for a remake of One Day at a Time? That came about, that came about because... Uh, uh, young associate Brent Miller, who's here, uh, was in conversation with an agent somewhere, and they said uh, somehow the conversation turned to uh, three generations of uh, Latino women, and we settled as a result of uh, Gloria Collette, who is herself a Cuban American, uh, decided that Latino would be Cuban. And that's how we got to that. But I was thinking as you were talking, there was another way <clears throat> our shows, uh, uh, some of our shows came about. Uh, Maud was a wonderful show. Bianca was, you know, the... Thanks. 
Piazza, by the way, made me laugh in corners of my physical being I didn't even know existed. Uh, but there was a wonderful actress playing Florida, her maid, and it occurred to us she would be the center of a show. So we introduced John Amos as her husband on an episode of Maud. By the time the show was off the air, uh, when it first appeared, uh, the network was calling us saying, there's a show in those two people. Uh, so that happened a lot. I always thought I, the expression for me wasn't spin-off. It was you had an actor in the Bush Leagues who should be in the majors. And they were proving themselves week after week in smaller roles. And it was just, you know, wouldn't it be great? And, and as a consequence, she also happened to be black. Now we were suddenly talking about a black family. I mean, that's it grew out of that kind of uh, desire to see actors fill their own silhouettes. Phil, did they ever ask for a Raymond spinoff? I would imagine that they would be all over that. You would think. <laughs> Still waiting for the phone call? <laughs> Norman seems to be doing well at Netflix. You should call them and see. We had an idea. We have, it was from the moment we introduced Amy's family, the, 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 uh, the brother's wife's family, we, we cast Fred Willard. Georgia Engel and Chris Elliott as her brother. Yes. The, that first table reading where we met them, I think in season seven, I went from the table reading to the phone to call Les Moonves at CBS and say, I think I have a spin-off. I think these are the... And then after uh, the show was over, some of the writers and I uh, thought, we should, we have, this is an obvious idea. Very simply, the brother now moves to Pennsylvania and becomes, he can't be a cop anymore, so he gets a job at Fred Willard as a vice principal in a junior high, and he gets a job as the gym teacher at the junior high, living with this family now, Georgia Engel, on one condition, that his ne'er-do-well son, Chris Elliott, is his assistant gym teacher. <laughs> Sounds good to me. They would not give us more than a pilot episode. Well, I said, well, we need, we need a guarantee because all these writers now, they're being, because they worked on Raymond, they're all getting these deals. And so they can't just chuck this money to do a pilot, right? They, they have families, they have to make a living. They said, we won't give you more than that. And what I saw, what happened was they did give a 13-episode commitment to a show where the entire cast was under 30. They were in their 20s. This cast, everyone was over 40. Ah. That's a big thing. Okay. I, so I what happened to that spin-off? And, yeah. and what happened to that other show? Dead. Dead in three episodes. See? Go with the old people. <laughs> what is that about old people? <laughs> Go with the I wrote uh, a, a show I love about five years ago now. Uh, when it occurred to me that one Betty White does not a demographic make. <laughs> and uh, so ask me the title of the show. Oh, thank you. Guess who died? 
and, uh, and it's about, you know, people from 65 up in a retirement home living full lives uh, with uh, anybody in the world could be calling an uncle, an aunt, a grandmother, a grandfather at one of these homes. So it was full of the opportunity for young people to be a part of it also. It's five years. I know the people that needed to read it in order to put it on the air. They all thought it was funny as hell. Nobody wanted the demographic. I've been trying for years to do a show with older people. Nobody wants it. Yeah. It's strange, too, because Golden Girls is so amazing. I know. You know, it's such a great show, and it, like, it... Talk about something that lasts. You could turn on an episode right now, and it's hilarious. I have to say, there's all these... They, they talk about this golden age of... of you know, you can sell a show. There's a, everyone needs content. But what I find when I go and pitch is, like, they seem like they all want the same demographic. They all want to get younger and younger. They want to get younger and hipper and sexier. And so it feels like 500 branches of the same company. And yet, you know, millennials aren't watching on television, so... Yeah, so why are you bothering me with that? <laughs> but there can be some programming for other people, can't right. It's true. It does seem that, you know, if there, if there, there are definite uh, gaps in programming. There are programs that, that there are huge swaths of the audience that they would like to... I think people want to see themselves on television, um, and they want to see some representation of their lives, uh, the, you know, on TV. Um, it's become important. I guess this is the era we live in now. And uh, there's so many wonderful older actors, too. The casting possibilities of these kinds of shows, which, of course, I've thought of these, too, um, and uh, tried in my own way to uh, do similar um, kinds of shows. Um, but the casting opportunities are huge. And um, I think I think the audience is there. It's true. How do you, gee, if you don't know how to do this, if you guys don't know how to do this, this is depressing. Do you know they still test the show once in a while? It's in syndication. And, and they test the characters. They want to see how it's scoring so they can sell it some more later. So who tests the best with young people? The grandparents on the show. Amazing. Yeah. I think our, our best episode that dealt with so. the grandmother coming, played by Frances Conroy, and she was amazing. She was so incredible, and, and I was so, I felt so honored that we had her on the show, and I'm, I can't wait to bring her back next season. And if we sat here long enough, we'd come up with an idea for a show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to give you guys a chance to ask some questions. I figure you might have some, so raise your hand. Um, go ahead. You know, it was our intention from the very beginning to represent all sides. We never wanted to go into it bashing the church. We felt like it was more interesting if we showed this woman, the, the mother of Martha Plimpton's character, who has a very deep belief in her faith. And that is a lot of people in the world. And I, even though it's, it's not necessarily mine, I didn't want to diminish that in, in everyone else and it also builds good conflict with her son who also has faith but is conflicted because he's gay and, and you know his faith and his homosexuality aren't in sync with each other and I thought that it's not just me but my writing partner Casey Johnson you know it, it was it was important to represent all sides so that people that are very religious 
weren't put off by the show immediately because we sort of had a bigger message we wanted to put out there, which is that, you know, the world is changing. Gay people are everywhere. And, you know, the church, the church's beliefs aren't necessarily in line with what society is. And we kind of felt that if we, if we offended people of faith, we weren't going to even open the dialogue to them. And, and we, it was really important not to, not to do that. Well, the, the only thing that's changed is just recently, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the New York Times does these op docs. You know them? They came and uh, and play, and one of the women who made the American Masters that's playing later here, uh, uh, another version of you, directed. The Times asked her to direct it anyway. We just did an op doc where I was uh, uh, casting, about casting those players. So there were a bunch of actors who came in playing the older roles, and it, it bids fair to sell the show. I mean, it seemed uh, the experience was so good, and the, I think what they got film-wise was wonderful. And maybe it's going to have a life in that sense, and maybe it'll trigger a sale. Um, well, Netflix is changing that. It's the world's first global network. You make six episodes or 13 episodes of a show, and they push a button, and it's on in 190 countries simultaneously. Right? So that, that's kind of incredible. That's changing the world. Uh, I don't know if the regular networks here at home can do that. I don't think yet. But... They're becoming, they're the new HBO. They're what, you know, they're the, the evolution of television. I found it interesting last year, I learned when our show got picked up and we went to the international upfronts that basically if a network, a broadcast network is going to pick up a show, it's because they've already figured out that it's selling internationally and will make their money back. And I was shocked by that. Yep. Um, the way I movies wanted, work too. Right. Right. Exactly. And always have. Yeah. Right? They can sell it in, in, to other countries. And there's always that weird uh, thinking that comedy doesn't translate yeah. internationally, but, you know, as well as dramas or right. procedurals or something like that. But, but it does. It does. Yeah. How many, how many different versions of Raymond are there around the world? Well, we're in 140 countries just dubbed or subtitled, but then we're in about six or seven countries where, like Exporting Raymond, where the Russians took our scripts and made everybody loves Kostya. <laughs> <laughs> but there's an Indian version and there's a there's a, there was an Israeli version, there's an Egyptian version where you're watching and a lady in a burqa comes in the kitchen and starts yelling at Mumtai or whatever his name is. I, it's, it's, it is 
something to see. Uh, I love it. China is the is the holy grail. I think that's where you want to end up. A lot of movies. You know, you go see a lot of action movies. This is a little off subject, but you see action movies. They make no sense for you. That's because they're not for you. They're for Chinese market that don't have the same story needs that we might have. Um, I don't think there is a negotiation in, t in terms of what do you mean? How do we address or how do we make the show? Yeah, because like he has often You know, I mean, I think that you can't get more personal than somebody's memoir. I mean, that is someone writing their life story from their point of view. And for us, you know, it was about sort of understanding where he was coming from, where if it's not that exact story, it's not going to feel real to him. And that's one person's point of view. You know, when you turn something like a memoir or something so personal into a television show, especially for broadcast, you know, for network television, there's going to be a transition, and it's not going to be that exact thing. That exact story exists in the memoir. You know, once you become a TV show, it becomes a collective. You know, you have writers, you have producers, you have actors, all bringing their own experiences and opinions and everything like that. So in good television, that collective makes the voice better. It lifts it up, and it changes it. And I think that if you embrace the change and you look at it as like a different entity, you know, it was never, it was always fictionalized. You know, it's not a documentary, it's not a biopic, it's, it's things that have never happened in real life. You know, we're making some of this up. And it's understandable that he would feel that way. You know, like we've never had our life story turned into a sitcom, and I can't imagine how hard that is, you know? No, I mean, I think he's made it very clear, you know, how he feels, but I think that the thing that he's sort of, you know, what his journey has been is reconciling the idea of, you know, having his memoir taken and turned into something that is fictionalized, that is not his story. And that happens when you, you have source material and then you turn it into a movie, you turn it into a series, like whatever, it happens often. And I think that the person, but especially a memoir, like it's not fiction, you know, the person who has lived this experience has the hardest time with the transition. It makes on, only sense, you know. I'll, I'll just add one note to that. The show that uh, State of Grace was very autobiographical and based um, in large part on my family, the, the Jewish uh, extended uh, Jewish family, and um, I, you know, and I was running the show with Brenda, and I felt bad in the room when people would come up with uh, stories having to do with my dad. It's like I would sit there in the room and go, "You don't know my dad. He would not do that. My parents were not like that." And I would think, "Oh my God, they actually were." And you know, but you. <laughs> 
but I, I don't want to tell them then. It's like, oh, no, you're on a TV show. This is what you have to do. There's a term, I, it, What you're saying is, rings very true, so I right. just wanted to chime in. And it was my, you know, it was really, it was my own show with Brenda, and I, you know, and I would have these uh, irrational arguments with, with, with wonderful writers who were very imaginative, much better than me, and, uh, and uh, you know, and then I'd go back the next thing, oh, I'm really sorry. I, I lost it, and we would do the show, and it would be great. Um, so I think it is. It is. Yeah, it's a different form. It has to take flight. Yeah. You have to breathe your own life into it. You can't be stuck to the reality. You take the reality. What you you explained it much better than I. No, no, no. But I mean, you know, and I think that the idea of then celebrating what that TV show is and how it speaks to so many people and how so many people can relate to it and let it be exist on its own. Right. It becomes you know, part of. It's become something else. It, it becomes something else. <laughs> yes, girl. Okay. Me and you are going to... Oh, uh, right. <laughs> we are the backup singers for the existential chorus. It's become a new, it's become a new American TV family. Yes. She brings it back to the theme that we started on in an hour ago. So anyway, um, so fortunately we've got to end it there, but thank you all so much for coming. Thanks to everybody. Thanks to our panelists. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com.